So expiation involving forfeiture is lower than wrongdoing. Lower than an infraction. What is it? A literal slap on the wrist by the cop. Episode 92 of Edward Reeb's Buddhist Books Podcast and part 31 of the Tibitaka Recitals in which I will recite something, I don't know. Uh, if you're on the YouTube, you just saw the name of what we're going to be reading. If you're on the podcast, it was in the title of the episode. But I, at in my present here, as I'm recording, don't know what it's called because I, I didn't look ahead. Um, so, uh, a couple things. First, before we get started, I'd like to welcome our very special guest, Guru Nanak. Now, some of you might be wondering, what? This, isn't this a Buddhist books podcast? Yes, it is. Uh, but in the spirit of ecumenicism, or interreligious you know, relations, perhaps. I thought it would be appropriate. Um, now, Guru Nanak, uh, let's go to the map. So over here in Bihar is where all the Buddhas and stuff in this general area kind of went down. Uh, but over here is a state in present-day India called Punjab. And uh, that is where, oh, I don't know, Almost 2,000 years later, probably 1,700 years later or so, um, Guru Nanak lived. And he lived in a time when the Muggles, some of you might be like, the what? You, the the non-magicians in Harry Potter? No, no, the Muggles were uh, the emperors that ruled India for, oh, I don't know, 600 years or so? Um, beginning in around the 1100s, uh, up until the colonial powers came in and then uh, there was The Last Muggle, which I have a book over here somewhere, which I haven't read yet, that's about him. Um, but yes, then the, uh, then the British took over, and then there was what they call the British period, which lasted up until independence. Um, now India is self-governing. Anyway, uh, so, so yes, he was living in a time when there were Hindus on one hand and Muslims on the other. And he as they say, attained enlightenment. Um, he vanished for three days, if you're into that sort of thing, and when he returned, he had news, which was, hey, you Hindus, you're wrong. There is only one God. And hey, you Muslims, you're wrong. Muhammad is not his prophet. <laughs> so, you know, that kind of put him in an awkward place where everybody was a little upset, uh, but his story, you know, goes on to... Um, say that he he brought many people into his um you know path and the uh the the word for disciple in punjab at the time was sikh so when when you say sikh that that means disciple and it's you, these days it means disciple of guru nanak 
But in Guru Nanak's time, it just meant disciple. Does that make sense? Um, now, he appointed another guru to uh, follow in his footsteps after he passed away. And then he appointed another one, and then another one, and 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 another one. And then there was a, the other famous uh, uh, guru. There, there, you know, there were notable ones in between. But uh, Guru Gobind Singh was the one who you know, said that everybody should have the five Ks. Uh, I, I think that these may have come a little bit earlier. The wooden comb, because they would never cut their hair, and so, of course, they would keep it in a turban. Um, so everybody had to have a wooden comb, which is kind of like a, a magical thing, as well as a practical thing. Everybody wore one of these, an iron kara. Uh, this is a kanga, if I recall correctly. And uh, then, then Guru Gobind Singh... Uh, when he was getting older, he was more of a warrior, so he, he had to fight, um, where Guru Nanak was much more of a pacifist. Um, so Guru Gobind Singh said, the guru that is to come after me will not be a uh, human being, but a book, which is the compilation of all of the teachings of all of the gurus and even some poetry written by Hindus and Muslims. Uh, and they call that book Guru Garant Sahab. I'm so sorry um, to those who know how badly I'm mispronunciating things. Um, and uh, also, I, the, the sum total of my knowledge of, of uh, Guru Nanak, I, I have to admit, 99% of it comes from this comic book series. He's a child, he grows up, attains enlightenment, he goes out, teaches, continues teaching, travels all over the place, and then he gets older and passes away and appoints a new guru, at which point the comics continue with uh, the other gurus. You can find those comics at seekcomics.com, and you can find the contact uh, email address and write to them and say, please, please ship to my country, because uh, I know they don't ship to the United States. I tried to have them sent to a friend there, uh, but they ship to me. I am in India, for those who didn't know. By the way, the neighborhood I'm in, Santnagar, um, in New Delhi, is largely uh, populated by people whose families come from Punjab. Um, and a lot of them are Sikh. In fact, that balcony right over there, um, there's an older uh, Sikh gentleman with a, with a similar turban who comes out and looks right at me when I'm recording these. Normally, I have this Stonehenge, uh, you know, banner covering the window for, just for privacy, you know, and because it's nice to have it there. Um, <clears throat> but I like to use natural light. I discovered through trial and error that the best way to record these is to use natural light and, uh, you know, have these candles lit, uh, but not have any artificial light whatsoever. So that's what, that's why it's so cool. And I lower it down to about 13% from the, never mind. Um, did I do all the Sikh stuff? Well, if I didn't, I'll get back to it. This is in, it, it's meant to be, you know, a perfect circle, the one God. Oh, by the way, that is called Mool Mantra. It's very nice. It's very nice. Um, the literal translation is approximately, there is one supreme being, the eternal reality, the true name, or Satnam, if you will, the creator without fear, devoid of enmity, Immortal, never incarnated, self-existent, known by the grace of the guru. And thanks to a sort of 
heretical in terms of traditional Sikhism uh, character by the name of uh, Yogi Bhaijan. Problematic, uh, but, you know, famous. And uh, he established what they now call Kundalini Yoga. Though if you ask one of the followers of Kundalini Yoga, they'll say, no, he did not. He most certainly did not. He simply brought it to the West. It has been in existence for 500 million years, or however long they say it's been around, um, which I, I won't contradict or, or uh, make light of. I'll, I'll just say that um, as a result of his bringing that now very popular movement to the West, a lot of Guru Nanak's teachings are very well known among, um, you know, your favorite uh, New Age, you know, like QAnon type conspiracy theorists, um, which is why you'll hear things like... sound like an Indian lady, but it's okay. It's okay, because God doesn't see race. His God doesn't see race. Uh, his God is also not male, uh, nor female. So, a little, little bit ahead of his time there, wouldn't you say? Um, so yeah, if you'd like to hear more, if you're more interested in hearing about Sikhism than you are continuing to listen to this episode in which I'm going to be continuing to recite the old original rules of Buddhism, feel free to listen to me and my buddy Amandeep Singh, who grew up Sikh, um, discuss many things, including uh, the Kara and the Kanga and uh, Guru Nanak a bit, a bit. We mostly talk about the Aghori, but anyway, so that's fun. Um, for those of you who uh, haven't seen me before, who this is your first episode of Buddhist books you've ever seen, I would recommend clicking here and starting with episode one of the Tipitaka. This is episode 31, as I mentioned, right? Yes. Um, and I have one more thing before we continue. You might have noticed these banners. I pointed uh, to to Senju Cannon. Well, this isn't Senju Cannon. She, she doesn't have a thousand arms here in this depiction. I think she only has two, but this is Canon. Canon. Um, and the most, uh, mostly if not all, of the, uh, of the, the Goshwins, which means red stamp, um, on, that are on these, these smaller square symbols that are on there are each from a different temple in Japan that is related specifically to Canon or Kuan Yin or Avalokiteshvara. Um, so first, uh, yeah, I wanted to talk about just we'll just zero in on one of the uh, one of the stamps, one of the Goshwins on this banner over here. But first, let's turn it on over. No, uh, too far. Uh, it's right in between there. Yeah, that gets it. Oh, haven't seen that one before. Now. It's not in between Vajrayana and Zen to say it's a cross between Vajrayana and Zen. It's definitely not. It is most certainly Vajrayana, but it is not in Tibet. Whereas this symbol is uh, much more specifically a Nepali or Tibetan, maybe Bhutani uh, type Vajrayana symbol where this one is, uh, well, it's a, it's, a, it's a Japanese form of the... Uh, the four-pointed Dorja. The four-pointed, what do they call it? They call it something else there. Please pardon my ignorance. Um, should have prepared better for this, shouldn't I? I think that particular symbol is actually the copyrighted uh, logo of 
uh, the Khoisan uh, organization in the United States, if I'm not mistaken. Speaking of Khoisan, let's go to the Kakejiku. That means hanging banner. Um, yes, this stamp here was put on the banner. They, there was a, a friend of mine whose parents, at some point in the past, took this band, you know, rolled up as a scroll, and went to Mount Khoisan. And there, one of the monks at the temple there uh, stamped and wrote this, what it turns out is a poem. Now, you've heard me mention before, if you've been following along this series, that there was a certain man named Kukai who traveled to China and uh, received Vajrayana instruction and uh, sutras and such and brought them back to Japan. And he ended up going up to Mount Koya or Mount Koyasan, which is a, a respectful way of saying Mount Koya, um, and established uh, Shingon Buddhism there about 1,205 years ago. And here you can see me walking down the path to the old that old uh, temple on Mount Koyasan, 1199 years and 358 days after uh, Kukai established Shingon there. How do I know it so specifically? Because everybody was saying, hey, if you had come a week later, you could have been here for the 1200 year anniversary. And I, I saw pictures of that later and it was very crowded. So. I mean, I have to say, I'm very glad I was there a week before and not on the day. But it's sort of interesting and maybe auspicious to have been there so close to such an anniversary. Um, so uh, here is a picture, or a statue rather, when they were giving tea, the monks were preparing tea. And uh, here's a, a statue they had there of Kukai. And you can see it looks like he's holding a Vajra or a Dorja. They, they call that a kangoko, a kangopo, something very similar to that. Um, here's my dad's old dorja. Um, so the Japanese one is very similar, kind of stylized, similar to that. I'm sure I probably found an image and put it up on the screen so you have an idea of what that looks like. See, dorja hiding behind. So, yes, that poem, okay, so after he passed away, Kukai was called Kobodayashi which is a more respectful form. And, uh, and he, that poem that you're seeing on the screen now uh, says something to the effect of uh, Kobo Dayashi is still alive. He is meditating in the cave behind the temple. That's pretty cool, right? Um, so yeah, here's a few more. See, there's a cemetery there. It's a very, there's a lot of old famous samurai and such that are buried near the temple. So everybody, including uh, car companies and, uh, you know, uh, other corporations um, like to buy graves there. And in the case of them, I don't think they're saying that Nissan is dead or anything. They just are taking the opportunity to, you know, be, be present there and make an ad out of a gravestone. Right? You know, the modern world meets the ancient world in interesting ways. Right? Uh, kind of wherever you go, most places that you go. And um, <clears throat> so uh, 
Yes, I mentioned being very ignorant about these sort of things, but you and I will both be substantially less ignorant if you continue watching this series for the next three or four years, because we will eventually read this. Very thick, heavy book about Shingon Buddhism. And you might notice that, see, these books are kind of, eh, I hope that's not too distracting today. Um, and this is full, with the exception of the second book, which is here. Um, that is because this book is too tall. It doesn't fit in any of those shelves. So I keep it in this shelf. Um, but this, this shelf is actually jam-packed full of books. So even some books that aren't too tall um, just aren't in there. But we may get to them at some point. For example, you might recall, we already started reading this book. And honestly, since we actually have the Pali literature, and this is more of a Cliff Notes, Cliff's Notes to the Pali literature, this is kind of like, oh, first there was this, and it said basically this, and then the people argue about whether it's this or that. I honestly, you and I perhaps were both falling asleep through most of this, and... Uh, yeah, I struggled to make it interesting. Uh, but there is another book, which I did read part of, um, which refers to a development that happened in, in Mahayana later. This is about the Madhyamaka school that was said to be founded by Nagarjuna. So uh, a lot of aspects of Madhyamaka, when I was reading about it, I'm like, oh, this is what a lot of people think Buddhism is when they say... Um, Buddhism, and they say, is it or is it not? Is, is, really is, or is, is not, not is, is not. That's more like Nagarjuna. Um, <clears throat> so, as we know from, uh, if you've been following along this series, Buddhism, in the sense of what the Buddha said so far, is a little different than that. Um, but, no doubt, after we finish reading the rules, there are five books. We just finished the first one, so... That took 30 episodes, so math, right? 1,200, no, 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 1,020, 120 more episodes, and we will be finished with the rules. And then we can finally move on to the teachings. Won't that be nice? Um, he sort of makes reference to some of the teachings, and there's teachings implied in some of the rules, but I'm going to read it in the order that it's in, because I'm a big nerd. Um, other books that are not included in this shelf that are over here, rather, that we might get to in the future include this old thing. See, when, when you have a book in a tropical climate, it ends up looking like this after a while. Um, so this is an old book. Uh, and this basically is a little bit more of a dry, <clears throat> scholarly uh, book. See... The Indian something rather in Tibet. The Indian Nitisastras in Tibet. So this is about the documents that were brought out of India to Tibet to uh, form the foundation of Tibetan Buddhism. And who brought them and when. And things like that. That's interesting to me. Maybe it's interesting to you. I don't know. If it's not, you can skip those. I won't be offended. Um, also... We have this book, The 14 Dalai Lamas. Now, you might have heard that the current Dalai Lama is 
the 14th Dalai Lama. And there were, but there were 13 other Dalai Lamas, and some of them, you know, there were like heretics that had to be dealt with in violent ways, and things you wouldn't expect uh, the, the Dalai Lama as we think of him today to be involved in. Um, <clears throat> and other things, no doubt. And so I look forward to reading this at some point later on when we get to Tibetan Vajrayana Buddhism. And if we're going to be reading about the Dalai Lama, who, who, could, uh, who could miss reading about the divine madman? Now, you heard me mention the other day that I'm not that interested in anything after 1240s when it comes to Buddhism. And that's true. I'm not that interested. But uh, I will read things. Um, I'm not that interested in things written by just like random New Agers in the past like 50 years, honestly. Um, or for that matter, uh, modern llamas writing for a Western audience, you know, in the past 50 years. Not that interested. I'm not that interested in, uh, in reading about, you know, Shimbalaya's founder or anything like that. But I'll read about their inspiration. Sure. Uh, divine Madman, bit problematic. You know, I, I have to mention when, when people are problematic. But um, in his day, you know, he, he, you know, it was a different time. What time? I don't know. I think 1700s, 1600s? Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, speaking of 1700s and 1600s, here we have <clears throat> volume two of uh, Buddhist Himalaya. This specifically is about studies in religion, history, and culture. The Sikkim Papers. Well, let's go back to the map. So Sikkim was a kingdom established in the 1600s um, in between China, Tibet, Nepal, and India. And uh, yeah, wow. We were there recently. Here's some video footage from uh, Sikkim. You can see some Tibetan stuff happening and beautiful mountains and just greenery and what a beautiful place. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's got such an interesting thing happening. Um, to cut short, um, the, uh, when the Gorkha king took over what we presently call Nepal, he started to move westward into what we presently call India. And uh, he was really interested in taking over Sikkim and taking it from that king that had ruled there at that time for a hundred and some odd years. And uh, so the king, apparently, according to the story, contacted the British and said, hey, can you back me up? And then the Gorka king heard that he had done that and just started clobbering him and really started invading with full force, uh, seek him. They had uh, set up camp, I think, 30 years before that on Darjeeling. And, uh, and so then the British came and kind of kicked them, you know, out, the, uh, the army but a lot of Nepali individual people remained. And uh, then Sikkim was under the protection of the British, and then the king said, hey, well, why don't you take Darjeeling, and you, know, you can grow tea there, and you won't be so dependent on the Chinese, and then there was a small train, and the rest is history. Um, that's the short version, very short version. But this book will uh, outline the individual people and individual moments in history in which Tibetan Vajrayana Buddhism was brought over in various forms into Sikkim, which happened in like the 1700s. And so these are things that, you know, happened in the 1700s, but they're related to, to texts and teachings from earlier, like 800s, 1000, that area, era, eras. 
So uh, what else? Yeah, last but not least, this doesn't fit into that shelf, so it's over there, but we will definitely be reading this and looking at the pictures. What did I just show you? Oh, okay. Violence is okay. Boobies. Well, if they're cartoon boobies, then I guess maybe YouTube will let it slide. All right, so is that everything? We covered this a little bit, kind of. A little bit of Vajrayana. Let's take this back to, um, yeah, the knob moves around the screen. Sorry about that. It, you know, what can you do? Um, let's get to today's reading, I suppose, shall we? Special guest, the eight auspicious symbols of Buddhism. Thank you for sustaining me with thy lovely coffee. Mm. All right. Lord Buddha, why are you so small? Please um, hang out here with uh, Guru Nanak. Nisagiya. Cool. That means forfeiture. Now I know. You already knew, but now I know. These 30 rules. 30, okay. Venerable ones. For offenses of expiation involving forfeiture come up for recitation. Forfeiture. Nisagia. One. At one time, the enlightened one, the Lord, was staying at Vesali in the Gotamaka shrine. At that time, three robes were allowed to monks by the Lord. A footnote. The three robes, Nikivara, consisted of the inner robe or cloth, Antaravasaka, the upper robe or cloth, Uttarasanga, the outer cloak, Sangati, permission to wear a double, Diguna, outer cloak, a single, Ekachia, upper robe, or Ekakia, upper robe, and a single inner robe is given at uh, something, also at the Gotamaka Shrine. So something will come up later regarding the uh, robes. Interesting, good to know. Uh, Dogen has, I think, two whole lectures about um, these robes. But I think there's eight by then. But anyway, um, perhaps I'll uh, recite a little bit of that at some point. Not today. Okay, continue. The group of six monks thinking, quote, these robes are allowed by the Lord, entered a village in one set of robes, remained in the monastery in another set of three robes, went down to bathe in another set of three robes. Those who were modest monks looked down upon, criticized, spread it about, saying, quote, how can this group of six monks wear an extra robe? Then these monks told this matter to the Lord. Quote, is it true, as is said, monks, that you wear an extra robe? And quote, it is true, Lord, they said. The enlightened one, the Lord, rebuked them, saying, How can you foolish men... See, it's not quite as intense as the uh, defeats and the uh, formal meetings. How can you foolish men wear an extra robe? It is not foolish men for pleasing those who are not yet pleased. 
three dots. What was the rest of that? This is the first time we're hearing about being pleased. And thus, monks, this rule of training should be set forth. Whatever monk should wear an extra robe, there is an offense of expiation involving forfeiture. Thus, this rule of training for monks came to be laid down by the Lord. At that time, an extra robe accrued to the Venerable Ananda, and the Venerable Ananda was desirous of giving that robe to the Venerable Shariputra. But the Venerable Shariputra was staying at Saketa. Then it occurred to the Venerable Ananda, quote, a rule of training laid down by the Lord is that an extra robe should not be worn. And this extra robe has accrued to me, and I am desirous of giving this robe to the venerable Shariputra. But the venerable Shariputra is staying at Saketa, which I think is Socket, what they call Socket now, which I haven't been to yet, but I will. I've heard her talk about it. She's from the neighborhood. That's one thing. I mean, obviously there's many, many, many other things that I love about my wife, but one of the things is when she talks about growing up in this area and going to visit her cousins in that area, they're all the same areas that the Buddha and the disciples were hanging out in. Same neighborhood. Her ancestors literally like watched the Buddha and his disciples walk by, and people came up and said, hey, would you like to follow Lord Buddha? And they said, oh, don't you know I'm from Krishna's caste? I don't need that. Don't need any extra holiness. Thank you very much. Anyway, now what line of conduct? I'm, you know, they didn't necessarily say that, but they were from Christmas cast. And they're proud of it, the Yadas. Anyway, and this extra robe, yes. Now, what line of conduct should be followed by me? End quote. Then the Venerable Ananda told this matter to the Lord. He said, quote, but Ananda... How long before Shariputra will come here? Here being in parentheses. End quote. Quote, Lord, on the ninth or tenth day, he said. Then the Lord, on this occasion, in this connection, having given reasoned talk, addressed the monks, saying, quote, Monks, I allow you to wear an extra robe for at most ten days. And thus, monks, this rule of training should be set forth. When the robe material is settled, when a monk's katina, or privileges, have been removed, an extra robe may be worn for at most ten days. For him who exceeds that period, there is an offense of expiation involving forfeiture. This has just like sort of a different energy to it, a different ring than like the rule about murder, you know? It's like, uh, wearing an extra robe, all right. <clears throat> when the robe material is settled means the robe material is made up for a monk or lost or destroyed or burnt or an expectation of robe material is disappointed. I hate it when expectations are disappointed. Don't you? Of course you do. You're human, right? When the katina, or privileges, have been removed means 
they come to be removed because of a certain one of eight grounds, or they come to be removed before the time by the order, for at most ten days means. It may be worn for ten days at the maximum. An extra robe means one that is not allotted, not assigned. Robe material means any one robe material of the six kinds of robe materials, including the least one fit for assignment, kinds of and including, were in parentheses. <clears throat> for him who exceeds that period, there is an offense involving forfeiture means. It is to be forfeited on the 11th day at sunrise. It should be forfeited to the order or to a group or to an individual. And thus, monks, it should be forfeited. That monk approaching the order, arranging his upper robe over one shoulder, honoring the feet of the senior monks, sitting down on his haunches, saluting with joined palms, should speak thus. Honored sirs, this is quote within quotes, honored sirs, this robe is to be forfeited by me, the ten days having elapsed. I forfeit it to the order, end quote. Having forfeited it, forfeited it, it, having forfeited it, the offense should be confessed. The offense should be acknowledged by an experienced, competent monk. The robe forfeited should be given back with the words, with the words being in parentheses, Quote within quote. Honored sirs, let the order listen to me. This robe of the monk so-and-so, which had to be forfeited, is forfeited by him to the order, by him being in parentheses. If it seems right to the order, the order should give back this robe to the monk so-and-so. End quote within quotes. That monk, approaching two or three monks, arranging his upper robe over one shoulder, three dots, Joined palms should speak thus, quote within quote, Honored sirs, this robe is to be forfeited by me, the ten days having elapsed. I forfeit it to the venerable ones. Having forfeited it, the offense should be confessed. Is that an end quote? Okay, before having forfeited it. I forfeit it to the venerable ones, end quote within quotes. Have, continuing within the quotes, because the Buddha's talking, saying this is how it should be done. Having forfeited it, the offense should be confessed. The offense should be acknowledged by an experienced, competent monk. The robe forfeited should be given back with the words, with, with the words being in parentheses, quote, within quotes, let the venerable ones listen to me. This robe of the monk so-and-so, which had to be forfeited, is forfeited by him, in parentheses, to the venerable ones. If it seems right to the venerable ones, let the venerable ones give back this robe to the monk so-and-so. End quote, within quotes. Continuing. That monk approaching one monk, arranging his upper robe over one shoulder, sitting down on his haunches, saluting with joined palms, should speak thus to him. Quote, your reverence, this robe is to be forfeited by me, the ten days having elapsed. I forfeit it to the venerable one. End quote, within quotes. Having forfeited it, the, the offense should be confessed. The offense should be acknowledged by this monk. The robe forfeited should be given back with the words, parentheses, quote, I will give back this robe to the venerable one, end quote. 
within quotes, if he thinks that ten days have elapsed when they have done so, there is an offense of expiation involving forfeiture. If he is in doubt as to whether ten days have elapsed, there is an offense of expiation involving forfeiture. If he does not think that ten days have elapsed when they have done so, there is an offense involving expiation there is an offense of expiation involving forfeiture. If he thinks that one is allotted when it is not allotted, there is an offense of expiation involving forfeiture. If he thinks that one is assigned when it is not assigned, there is an offense of expiation involving forfeiture. If he thinks that one is bestowed when it is not bestowed, there is an offense of expiation involving forfeiture. If he thinks that one is lost when it is not lost, there is an offense of expiation involving forfeiture. If he thinks that one is destroyed when it is not destroyed, there is an offense of expiation involving forfeiture. If he thinks that one is burnt when it is not burnt, there is an offense of expiation involving forfeiture. If he thinks that one is stolen when it is not stolen, there is an offense of expiation involving forfeiture. Not forfeiting the robe which had to be forfeited, if he makes use of it, there is an offense of wrongdoing. Oh, so expiation involving forfeiture is lower than wrongdoing. Lower than an infraction. What is it? A literal slap on the wrist by the cop. Okay. Uh, yes. If he thinks that the ten days have elapsed when they have not elapsed, there is an offense of wrongdoing. If he is in doubt as to whether the ten days have not elapsed, there is an offense of wrongdoing. If he thinks that the ten days have not elapsed when they have not elapsed, there is no offense. There is no offense if within ten days it is allotted, assigned, bestowed, lost, destroyed, burnt, if they tear it from him, if they take it on trust, if he is mad, if he is the first wrongdoer. And he says he hasn't done anything bad. Oh, okay, if there is no offense if the monk has never done anything wrong before in his life and he accidentally wore the robe that he was supposed to wear for 10 days, he wore it for 11. That's nice. They're like, hey, you know what? You have a clean record. Just keep driving. Just take care of it when you can, all right? It's like uh, when the cop lets you go. It's like, okay, all right. But if you have some stuff on your record, you're like, yesterday you were doing something funky with a plaster statue. You know what? You're in trouble, buddy. That's a wrongdoing. Don't wear a robe longer than 10 days. I'm going to write you a ticket. Makes sense, right? Um, then the group of six monks did not give back a robe that had been forfeited. They told this matter to the Lord. He said, quote, monks, a robe that has been forfeited is not to be given back. Whosoever should not give it back, there is an offense of wrongdoing. And there's no, like, dramatic, told is the first Nisagia. It's just, it's, it just ends. It's just, okay, all right, that's the end of that. All right, well, since my intro was a bit long, um, I'm going to go ahead and uh, close here. But it seems like these are short enough that we'll probably read more than one, generally speaking, um, as we run through these 30 Nisagia. And we'll pick up where we left off next time with Nisagia 2. Hope you had fun. Special thanks to our special guest, 
Guru Nanak and uh, to the spirit of Kobodayashi, who was still alive and meditating in the cave behind the temple, as we learned from the poem. And I do look forward to, you know, that point in the distant future when we get to dive in a bit to um, Shingon. And, um, yes, if you, I mean, I know there's one person, if you're watching, hello, and I do look forward to that time that you and I can spend a weekend uh, at one of, uh, doing a, uh, a monastery stay in Mount Khoyasan. There's a, a Shingon scholar there who uh, uh, follows this podcast, believe it or not. Um, and yes, yes, I, I do look forward to that, hopefully in the next year or two. Um, and then I can, you know, maybe pick up some more material because I have two books on Shingon. Um, but by the time we get to Shingon, which it's going to be a while because it's going to be a while before we get even to Mahayana, let alone, um, Vajrayana. But, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll try to get a few more books to dive into. Just not books written recently. I'd like to get English translations of like books written by... Kobodayashi or by students of Kobodayashi or, or people in that lineage from at least a few hundred years ago to be nice. Um, yeah, and uh, you know, generally speaking, as, as, as we move along, um, very, it's very likely and perhaps the, the, the book list will grow and the various subtle uh, forms of Buddhism that I don't even know about perhaps today uh, maybe I'll have a book or two uh, about by the time we get to those centuries. But we're still, theoretically speaking, in the 6th century BC. Though these books might have been written in the 4th century BC or so. Um, all right. Is there anything else? We covered everything I wanted to cover today? Yeah, I think so. All right. I'll close with the usual prayer prayer my father taught me when I was very young, which we used to perform after our morning meditations. I haven't said that in a while, so. To the north and to the south, to the east and to the west, to the spirits of light among us and to the spirits below, we send out our reverent love and compassion. May all beings be happy. May all beings be serene. May all beings be in peace. Oh. Until next time.